but it's just that that constant quest for how do I better help this person to liberate their talent and performance without blowing them up or burning them out or destroying another area of their life. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Howdy folks, it's RJ Singh here from Ultra Habits and we are bringing to you our next guest on the show, Martin Moore. Now, Martin is the author of No Bullshit Leadership and he is the founder of Your CEO Mentor. Now, Martin is no traditional leadership guru. He challenges traditional and current thoughts on leadership by actually bringing it down to the basics with a real focus on performance orientation. Now, he holds no punches. This is all about how you as a leader could execute and grow and develop and ultimately lead within your organization. Martin is from Australia, so he has a very Australian down-to-earth, no-bullshit, no-holds-punch style. He's currently in the United States where he is spreading his message, doing lots of keynote speaking, and yes, continuing to mentor executives like yourself to get to the top or stay at the top of your organizations. Please have a listen or watch the show. Get back to us. I'm sure you're going to get a lot out of this episode. I had a really good time with Marty. Lots of insights, lots of things that I'm bringing into my own leadership journey, and I'm sure you will be impacted in the same way that I have been. Anyways, guys, I'm going to leave you in the capable hands of Marty. All the best. Take care. Kick ass this week. I'm out. Marty, we want to welcome you to the Ultra Habits show. It is interesting, as I said before, an American in Australia and an Australian in America. We are glad to have you on the show. How are things? Uh, Fantastic, RJ. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. So before we kick off into all the kind of serious stuff, I heard that you're a marathon runner or you used to be a marathon runner. And at Ultra Habits, we we have a certain propensity to moving our body. So can you give us the rundown on your running career? Yeah, this this is a great place to start, RJ, because in the days before my dodgy knees and love of good red wine took over, (laughs) I did... I did run. I did run a few marathons. It's true. And look, I say to people because they'll ask me, "Oh, were you ever any good as a marathon runner?" And you know, hey, look, I was. A, I was a pretty above average hacker, right? And the way I describe it is, my personal best time for the marathon is three hours and fifteen minutes. And not bad. When they say, "Yeah, it's, it's like I said, an above average hacker," right? But when people say, well, "Was that good?" I say, "Let me put it this way: the fastest man on the planet to ever run a marathon, Elliot Kipchoge." currently has the world record at two hours, one minute and 39 seconds. In 1994, Oprah Winfrey ran the Marine Corps Marathon in Arlington, Virginia, and she ran four hours and 30 minutes odd. So my time puts me smack bang in between the best runner of all time and Oprah. How does that that give you perspective? That is a really, really, really good way of framing yeah, actually. Absolutely. And it, go, it goes to show that creating perspective really shifts the way that we view things, doesn't it? 
It certainly does, RJ. And also, you know, just the um, the joy and the art of storytelling and the, the way that storytelling, when used as a leader, can really help to engage people. Um, because when you ask me, have you run a few marathons, 80% of your listeners switched off and went, what's this dickhead going to say? And then, <laughs> and then hopefully the story made it a little bit more interesting. I, I really, um, you know, I came across your content and I liked it. You know, like I've been in Australia. I like that, you know, that kind of Aussie that roughness you got mixed with that kind of smooth leadership style. I was like, this is my kind of guy. And I'm a big believer that the anecdote to apathy within an organization is skilling up in high performance, not the rah-rah, not the that circle jerk. And I think there's an element of self-care for sure. And we need to understand that our employees need to be content, but the happiness trap is a very slippery slope and we'll get into that. But before we start, I got to ask you this question. Why is fake it till you make it bullshit? Well, I think that there's a particular reason in that it demonstrates a lack of authenticity and a lack of fallibility and transparency about where you actually are. There's absolutely nothing wrong with growing into and stretching into a role or growing in and stretching into a situation or a new context. And that should be expected. Uh, I did that many times in my career because I switched between industries and job families a number of times. And each time was a completely blank sheet of paper for me. Now, I brought some generic transferable skills for sure. But the thing with that is I didn't walk in there and say, okay, I'm here to rescue the organization because I know my shit. I walked in and said, guys, when it comes to this industry, I don't know shit from strawberry jam. And so I'm going to rely on you to help me to get up to speed with this. Now, I bring some other skills. They've hired me for a reason. And you'll see the value in those over time. But I'm not faking anything, right? This is who I am. This is where I am. And yes, when it comes to the knowledge of the industry, I'm absolutely behind the eight ball. You guys are way ahead of me. And I'm going to lean on you to help me come up to speed. So I think that the more authentic, the more open approach is to just admit where you are and work on moving forward. Um, the fake until you make it thing implies, uh, I think, a level of disingenuity that I don't find particularly tasteful, to tell you the truth. You said, uh, I heard you say that the concept of leadership is increasingly being disconnected from results. Why and how has this been happening in your view? And what's the anecdote? Well, I think the focus, RJ, started to fall on desirable leadership attributes quite a while ago. Uh, and I'm talking about you know, 10 plus years. And this is really around what type of person do you need to be to be a great leader? And research study after research study looked at the attributes that great leaders held. And then we've used this to somehow say, this is what the prototype of a great leader looks like. And you need to aspire to these particular attributes. And so we've sent people along this path of aspiring to leadership attributes that end up being just virtue signaling. So people want to give the impression that they are honest, that they have high integrity, that they have courage, that they are transparent, that, that they are fallible, that they are humble. And to tell you the truth, I know some people that don't have a humble bone in their body, but they're still great leaders. And so we only tell half the picture here. If it's a case of 
great leaders are all humble. Well, that's not necessarily true. And just because you are humble doesn't mean you can lead. Classic example, if you are humble and you are indecisive, that is absolutely disastrous for your people. If you're humble and decisive, it can be like rocket fuel. But we only tell half the story and people are left with this impression that humility per se is the thing that you need to chase. Now, while we're all worried about these desirable leadership attributes that we need to show to our people, we're forgetting about the fact that we're there to get results. That's it. We're there to create value, period. And so if we're creating value and we're doing it properly, it's best for everyone. It's best for your stakeholders, from shareholders to customers to suppliers, even to your employees, because it makes the business strong and growing and sustainable and profitable. This is a really long answer to a really quick question. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. We, we really want to unpack this one. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I, I think it's worth unpacking to this extent. So, so my number one thing is a leader is there to deliver value. Now, before your listeners all rail against what a heartless capitalist bastard I am, value comes in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. It, yes, of course, it's financial value and that's important. But if you're running a surgical practice, value for you might be better post-operative outcomes for your patients. If you're the principal of a high school, value for you might be a higher percentage of students graduating and being accepted into the university and college degrees of their choice. So there's a whole range of ways we can measure value. Making an organisation safer for your employees is a source of value. But the thing that a leader has to do is work out what the big value levers are for their organisation and to only go after those and go after them fanatically, like nothing else matters, because really it doesn't. But we all do so much stuff that adds no value at all because it's just cranking the handle. It's just activity. And while we're feeling all warm and fuzzy, about the desirable leadership attributes that we tell ourselves we possess, we're not doing that thing, which is delivering results. Do you think that a firm can deliver the warm and fuzzies whilst being performance orientated? Because I struggle with that one. I don't necessarily yep. know if that's possible. Like, what's your view on that? I tend to agree with you on that, RJ. I think... Warm and fuzzy doesn't live with high performance generally. Now, it doesn't mean that you're not caring for people and giving them an incredible amount of satisfaction because if you're leading well and you're stretching people and they're delivering, they'll learn that they can have an impact that really increases their self-esteem, really increases their sense of self and contribution. And that's where you get this long-term happiness. The trying to keep people happy with warm and fuzzies, that's a short-term sugar hit. And that's easy to do. Like you can you can easily do that, but it's not going to drive performance. It's not even in the long term going to make your people happy. Uh, it's you know you can you can keep feeding your kid ice cream all day long, three meals a day, and then one day they're going to be wake they're going to wake up and realize they're being bullied at school. They can't play sport. They feel terrible about themselves. And even though they love the ice cream at the time, that's where it's eventually going to take them. And I think the short term sugar hits we give in inspirational, motivational. Um, encouragement and support without the substance behind it, I think that's quite dangerous. Mm. Your methodology to me would be appropriate for firms that are performance orientated in the individuals within those firms would be very, uh, 
results driven. What happens and what's been your experience when you've been brought into a firm and you've realized that the ethos of the organization isn't performance driven? Has it been problematic? Like, do you, are you, do you come in with the hammer and you're like, look, we've assessed the organization, your leadership, you've got three people here that are just, they don't got like, what's, cause I, I you've got to, let me give you context at ultra habits. Our tagline is embrace your alpha. Like we are not apologetic about being driven. And so your message resonates with us but it doesn't necessarily resonate with every organization. What happens when Marty comes into a firm and you're like, Oh shit, like heads are going to have to roll. Does that happen? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Let me just give you a couple of different examples just to broaden this out a little, because I I absolutely see this problem RJ and I've lived with it on a number of occasions in organizations. Let me start with something that's a little bit more theoretical for me because I've not worked there is a not-for-profit company, Mm. right? An organization that is either doing charitable work or serving uh, a customer Mm. in the social services space and a not-for-profit by definition. They call these organizations for-purpose organizations these days because they're purpose rather than profit, which I'm not quite sure how they disconnect them, but we'll get back to that later. (laughs) Now, it doesn't matter if you are in a not-for-profit or for-purpose organization. What are your objectives? Your objectives are to serve your stakeholders as well as you possibly can. And even if you're running a charity for, let's say, quadriplegics and providing services to people who have quadriplegia, to do that, you want to make it as efficient as you can. You want to make the resources that you've got stretch as far as they possibly can. And the service you provide to each individual that you aim to serve as a customer, you have to give them the best service you possibly can. Now, if you use the excuse that says we're not performance driven, we are a for purpose organization, you're actually robbing the stakeholders that you are there to support. And so that to me is completely anathema to why you've been put into that situation. But we tend to think that because some of the things that are not so driven by hard commercial imperatives, we get to not focus on performance. And like I said, you're just robbing your stakeholders by doing that and by allowing that as a leader. So I think, I think it's easy to build excuses around it. Now, let me give you another example of an organisation I've been in where the culture was very much uh, a culture that didn't focus on performance. And I find this in businesses that are heavily unionised, where the workforce is heavily unionised. Australia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Australia, France. There are, there, are, there are countries that make an art form of this. Um, although I must say that the penetration of union membership in Australia is down substantially these days. I think it's down below um, 17%, uh, down below uh, 12% across the whole of industry. Uh, and I think you know, really, really you know, dropping. It's a dying model. But having said that, going into an organisation like this, particularly in an organisation that has some sort of monopoly mandate, and because Australia is small, there are lots of monopoly industries. So, you know, water infrastructure, um, you know, passenger train services, electricity infrastructure, poles and wires. Those sorts of things tend to be run by monopolies and to have a regulator that tries to keep the monopoly efficient. These businesses are, by definition, horribly inefficient. And years and years and years and years of running them inefficiently, they start to believe their own bullshit and start to think that they're world class. 
And so when you go into an organisation like this where they have a completely different perspective on what they're doing than reality would support, it's pretty hard to go in and say in an organisation like that, the performance is substandard and it's not acceptable. That's like trying to explain colour to a blind person. They just look at you. They have no idea what you're talking about. And so, yes, you have to get rid of the people who are in the positions who are most likely to thwart any change. And the second thing and the most important is that you've got to bring in people who are exemplars of the type of behaviours and drive and performance that you want. And so rather than trying to explain, you know, RJ, I need you to change. You need to do this, this and this differently. That's going to be really hard for you to connect with. But if I bring in someone, let's say I hire Jenny and she already has all that stuff, and I can just say, okay, RJ, watch Jenny. Look what she does. You need to do more of that. Observe how she does her job. Observe what standard she sets. Observe how she treats the people and how she lifts them. If you can do that, you're on the right track, mate, and I'm going to support you with it. But Jenny's the model that you're going to have to look at for a while. Suck her brains. Talk to me. Let's let's work out what that looks like for you. But staying where you are, sorry, mate, it's not an option. So you said something in a um, in a keynote that I found really interesting. Uh, it related to kind of one of my favorite sayings. I think um, the the seals really coined it was that we don't rise to our level of expectation. We drop to our level of training. And I'm sure you've heard that. And in, in a context, you use something similar. You said that employees will fall to the level of what is deemed as the norm within an organization. So what you're saying is that you polarize the environment, which could be a bit controversial where you're like, yeah. well, Michael's the benchmark. And you'll use people within an organization to signal what performance looks like. That could be quite controversial, right? Oh, totally, totally. Mate, I didn't say I was. I didn't say I was loved in these organizations. I said I just got a job done, right? <laughs> I, had, I had to get over. I had to get over the need to be liked pretty quickly. Trust me. And that's interesting. Let's let's be, be philosophical here in terms of looking at how your message has been received in Australia, let's say, versus the US, because I know from being here in Australia, there still is a kind of play hard, how you go in mentality. Have you found challenging, uh, have you found the Australian environment challenging opposed to more global um, environments where they are more competitive, let's say in the US or UK? What's been your experience here back at home? Well, it's a good question. I, I don't think I have enough experience of all the different environments to actually you know, form an opinion on it. What I would say, though, is just, just anecdotally, uh, I think Australia obviously is pretty um, pretty under underwhelming when it comes to tall poppy syndrome. So anyone who manages to stick their head up above the pack uh, will get cut back down pretty quickly. I think there's a, there's a healthy amount of that in Australia. But I think ultimately there are a lot of high-performing teams and organisations in the country in Australia who absolutely ascribe to these principles. Uh, but it's certain industries and it's uh, certain um, geographical locations potentially higher than others. And when you get into countries like the UK and the US where it is much more uh, competitive, I think what you find is that people are just more accepting of how it actually goes down. And I think there's less resistance to how it goes down. And people like me are probably less uh, unique 
in those markets uh, than I might be here, you know, mixing it with some of the people here with a slightly different cultural bias. But what I would say is that is that our podcast, uh, No Bullshit Leadership, is in uh, over 70 countries. So it's resonating with people in different cultures, places where I never would have thought that this type of content would actually strike a chord. But, you know, we're big in Ghana, we're big in Denmark, we're big in Japan, you know. And, and uh, when I say big, you know, it's all relative. But, you know, the fact that we can strike an audience there for people that listen to this stuff and it resonates with them, I go, well, you know, this is fairly universal. There are, there are things here that people with the right mindset are going to pick up and adopt and it's going to help them. And that's what we're trying to do. So, yes, there are cultural differences. But, yeah, I'll, I'll find out more as I go on into the U.S. market and see how it goes. Happy to report back to you, mate, in, in, in six or 12 months. <laughs> I think you. I think you. You'll do well, and I. I. I have to say, in Australia, I think that firms that embrace your methodology will create a competitive advantage. Like I. I know you've done work, or you've had um, recommendations from Domino's, and I'll tell you, I usually don't eat food like that, but I'll order Domino's just because I love their app and their service delivery. They've just nailed it. It just phenomenal business in terms of what they're doing here in Australia. And I don't even like their pizza, man. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'll just do it because I'm a fan of commerce and I just love the service delivery, but they just have their shit together. And so, and they're aggressive and they're always kind of augmenting their approach based on the market. And I think firms that do that in Australia are going to create that competitive advantage because not everyone is actually doing it, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and you look at, you know, that Domino's business in Australia, Domino's Pizza Enterprises, they've got a fantastic leadership there, uh, you know, with Don May, the um, uh, the global CEO, Nick Knight, uh, you know, Michael Gillespie, people like that, that. They are excellent leaders and they are so driven and committed and they want to stretch their people and not take failure as an answer, but to keep pushing and doubling down. You know, they, they have a an unbelievable business. And when you actually make your money out of a product that retails for five bucks, like that is that is, that is awesome, right? That's a, that's an unbelievable story, uh, and so massive respect to those guys and a shout out to them. Uh, it's a great business. I'm glad you raised that one, actually. No, yeah, they're they're extraordinary. I mean, they there was some sh- shit I saw. Like this is just clever, right? Like they were delivering to your car. They uncover through market research that people go to the beach here in Australia. They'll sit there for hours. I mean, that's just clever business. You know, Pizza Hut's Pizza Hut's falling apart. You might see one or two here, and that's the reason why because Domino's is innovative. You um, you also said something that I found really interesting, Marty, and something I've experienced within my business. So, like at Cora, I'm head of growth. Um, And I operate on a timeline in terms of results that everyone within my business may not because I have to realize revenue at certain times in the year. But the firm, even people that are uh, owners, because you get caught up in BAU, they're more focused on the inputs, the front end activity, and they lose sight of what we're actually trying to achieve because everyone gets caught up in their weeds of their own function. How do you continue within an organization, especially a massive one? Like we're not big, right? Like we're an SME, but within a massive organization where you got varying levels of motivation, not everyone's connected to being driven by money. 
how do you connect everyone continuously to the outcomes and ensure they don't get lost in the weeds? Yeah, it's a great question, RJ, and there's a couple of elements to it. I think the first is actually understanding how what they do individually contributes to the organisational purpose and, and strategy. And that's sort of, for me, the holy grail. If you could get people that at every level from top to bottom of the organisation understood exactly why they were doing what they were doing, it would be a completely different organisation. But every layer you go down from the top, and you know, if you're in a, an organisation that has five, six, seven layers, you'll see the dilution at each layer. So, for example, when I was running CS Energy, the strategy for the business was absolutely crystal clear in my head because I'd spent months and months and months chewing it over, letting it germinate, thinking of options, taking inputs from people, talking to the board of directors. I'd spent this time doing that to get to the point where I understood it profoundly. Even one layer down from me, smart, capable, experienced industry executives just didn't quite understand it the same way, just not quite. And when they spoke about it, they didn't speak about it quite the same way. And then you go down to the front line where people are actually doing work and you listen to a frontline supervisor or team leader briefing their team on what they're doing and why they're doing it. And I'm standing there mildly apoplectic by what I'm hearing coming out of their mouth because it's almost 180 degrees to what I would have thought they'd be saying. So the communication channels make that really, really difficult, the connectivity there. The other thing that I just wanted to mention briefly, and it all comes back to value, is the lack of clarity around what it is that makes a difference. What are those really big value levers that we need to pull to get the results for this organisation? And if you get the top three or four or five right, and you believe that you've actually identified the right things, then initiatives numbers six to 415 don't matter. They just don't matter. You nail those top five and you put all your energy and resources into doing those brilliantly and you will win. And instead of dicking around with number 15 or number 28 or number 46 because it's someone's pet project, don't waste your resources on it. Relax, focus on the things that matter. So if you can actually get people focused on the things that matter and stop the activity that doesn't create the most value, you'll be in a pretty good place. But in my experience, Stopping things that have already started is the hardest thing a leader can attempt to do. It is so hard. Mate, they get a life of their own. They get money flows towards them. Plans get set up. Resources get established. It is so hard to stop stuff that's already going. And that was you know, a constant battle for me in you know, most of my executive career was just stopping the dumb shit. If we just stop the dumb shit, we'd be in a much better place. That's a really good answer. Um and I reflect upon that in terms of why I moved to Victoria to our head office. One, it's to focus me as well. Like I can get lost in, uh, in you know, my, you know, when you're remote, you lose sight and connectivity to the heart and soul. And I've been remote for over 10 years. Um, and coming here, coming into the office, seeing the logo of our business on the wall, it reminds me, connects me, and I'm super, super switched on. The other thing is it becomes easier to mobilize and drill the message in those around me. And so I really resonate with what you're saying. I think it's so easy for people, even to firm my, our size, you know, we've got 30 people. 
I could just imagine the complexity in a in an energy business, which is heavily asset based, slow, you know, a lot of capex, a lot of bad habits, probably sunk costs, and you're trying to like unwind all that shit. So, no, that's 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 quite interesting. So, um, I'd like to know how you personally started to adopt this methodology. Was it something that you inherently kind of saw? lacking when you moved into leadership where did this all come from for you did you get mentorship by you know um, another marty what was the go like how did this all unfold for you well that's a really good question because obviously this evolved and developed over a long period of time so my executive career probably went for um in in you know corporate sea sea level jobs probably went for you know 16 17 years and during that time i managed to put all the pieces together from my lower level jobs that I'd done as I came through the management and leadership ranks. What I found was that I was learning all the time. And I think the number one thing is to be constantly learning, constantly thinking there's something I don't understand. There's something I don't know. What Question everything. Why did that happen that way? What did I miss there? You know, how could I have got a better outcome for that person or for the team? It's that constant curiosity and questioning that has led me to become a real student of the human condition. I think is probably how I'd describe it. I'm I'm no different. I'm no different from anyone else, right? I just pay attention to the people side of things, and because I wasn't an expert, a technical expert in anything in particular, it made me uh, have a greater necessity to use my generic skill set uh, and get the most out of it I possibly could, and also to get the most out of the people around me. And, and that was how I came across a lot of this stuff. Now, if you look at my methodology that's in our online program, the things that I talk about in the podcast, uh, the, the basis for the book, No Bullshit Leadership, which, get, which gets published this month, all of that stuff came over a long period of time. Some of it I've known for 20 years. Some of it I discovered in my last year of being a CEO because this stuff is unlocked through a lot of observation, a lot of trial and error. And just occasionally, no matter how smart you are, occasionally you will have something happen that just hits you like a pie in the face. And you go, wow, you know, fancy, you know, here I am. I was 55 years old before I discovered this thing about leadership. And I'm discovering stuff all the time. So I, I think just that continual learning journey, continually thinking about and observing and questioning is probably the most valuable attribute any leader could have. Hey guys, just wanted to take a quick break to thank you for your continued support of the Ultra Habits Show. It's through your support that we've been able to scale this thing so quickly and so strong over the past year. And we're truly grateful for your continued support. If you haven't already, please go to www.ultrahabits.co and subscribe. You'll get cool information, insights, and be up to date with everything we're doing. And also, if you haven't, please rate this podcast The link is in the show notes. When you do this, you help us scale our message of ultra performance, ultimately helping us create more impact with our tribe. Anyways, we're going to leave you back in the hands of our wonderful guest. I'm going to jump into some of your uh, 
I'm going to paraphrase some of the things you've said. I'm just going to throw them at you. And I'd like you to unpack it. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, so one head to pat, one ass to kick. Love it. Come on, man. Tell us what, what's the goal. I've got to say that's one of my favorites. And, and to tell you the truth, this is one of the things I learned relatively late in my career, probably in about the last seven or eight years of my corporate career. Now, the reason this took me a while to come to was because I didn't quite understand the vast day and night difference between a culture that relied on consensus and management by committee and a culture that relied on strong single point individual accountabilities. And the the difference, as I said, is it's night and day, RJ. It's so different. The thing about it is when you have multiple people who feel as though they're accountable for stuff, you get this all care, no responsibility thing going on. So I would go to executives and say, well, you know, so who's in control of this? Oh, well, you know, I'm doing this bit. John's doing that bit. Peter's doing that bit. Christine's doing that bit. I don't know who's bringing it all together, but I'm sort of doing my bit. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy and comfortable where I am, right? That is a complete, it's all care, no responsibility. It's completely different from the energy you get when I say to you, RJ, mate, this is yours. You own it. You own all the resources. You've got people who appear to you that you're going to have to actually influence to come along the journey with you and deliver what you need from them. If you have problems, come and see me, but this is on you. And we're going to agree some parameters for how this is delivered, time, quality, scope, everything else. We'll agree on that. And then I expect you to deliver it. And you are in the hot lights. You're the guy. You're carrying the can no matter what. Now, when we have that conversation, it completely changes the way you feel about what you're doing. And when a problem or an issue arises, what do you do? You don't sit back and go, ah, oh, you know, I might wait for Greg to fix that. You're knocking on my door. Hey, Marty, we've had this problem. You know, here's what I think about it. Here's what I think it means to the project. Here's, here's you know, can you just give me some guidance? I'm thinking of doing this, you know. Do you think that's okay? Is there any other ways that I haven't thought of? You know, so you're, you're in problem-solving mode. You are in active, driven ownership of what you're doing. And I think the energy that that releases and the way it plays out is completely different. If you have a peer who you're relying on to give you something for, for, for one of your deliverables, you're not going to let them mess you around and ignore you. You're going to front them. You're going to talk about it. And if you can't get any satisfaction there, you'll come to me because I'm your boss and you'll start talking to me about it. And so it, it releases a different energy. It forces people to be adult about what they're doing. And the amount of productivity and the results that you get out of that are phenomenal. So I say that this accountability thing is the key to execution. So one head to pat, one ass to kick. That's it. It's the same person, both of those, the head and the ass. Yeah, it's such an Australian way of uh, uh, putting such a dynamic principle. I love it. You should trademark that shit, man. <laughs> trademark that shit, Marty. I've got to say, though, RJ, look, that, that sounds quite brutal. And it, and it probably would be if it weren't for one really, really important aspect. And that is that accountability and empowerment are two sides of the same coin. They must travel together. So I can't make you accountable for something unless I'm going to make it possible for you to get that done. And to make it possible, I've got to do a lot of things. I've got to make sure that the objectives and um, uh, deliverables are really, really crystal clear to you. I've got to make sure you're resourced appropriately. I've got to make sure that I don't distract you with bullshit that comes in that doesn't add value and just takes your mind off the game. 
I've got to support you in cross-team skirmishes. I've got to be available for you when you need support. Like there's a whole range of things that I need to do. And I've got to let you make the decisions that you need to make to drive your destiny. And so basically, that's empowerment. It's not just, okay, RJ, you've got it. Good luck, mate. Go and be your best, right? That's not empowerment. That's that's negligence. So the right level of empowerment with that strong single point accountability is the key to execution excellence, in my experience. No, and I reflect on our organization at Cora. I mean, our CEO is young. He was a peer of mine uh, and a peer of many of ours. And he was a first time, he is a first time CEO. One of the things that I have seen him do over the last six months is, and rightfully so, we were having meetings where they were kind of circle jerks and it was like tabling issues to identify and answer later. And he started to tighten things up and he was like, well, who's uh, who's own he, he kind of now makes us as a leadership team figure the shit out and then he drives us to be accountable because as he said if he doesn't it always comes back to him right and because we're a small business a me sme it's problematic because we can't scale with him kind of flat out in in the weeds and so if i reflect on our organization i see our ceo you know, as a young first time CEO under 40, he's actually starting to adapt this. And I think it was a bit of a, a shock to people, but I like it. Um, and reflecting on you, some may say you're a hard ass. You you are, but, but here's the go. This is how I view you. You're actually very reflective about people. And I think that, Whilst people might think you're a hard ass, within your style, there's a level of empowerment that people will get. I think what it is, is your style is predicated on having the right people at the wheel. Because if anyone were to see or I think be exposed to your style and they didn't have a performance orientation – they would see you in a very different way to say how I see you. Because I think you'd be a terrific leader uh, in terms of being able to get the best out of someone like myself, who is always looking at, I love the pressure and the hustle and bustle. And I love to feel that fear of will I succeed or will I not? And I think having a leader like you behind me would be great. But I think for an individual that's not comfortable with that kind of shit, and then they got you, it'd be a nightmare potentially. <laughs> let's let's just say let's just say I wouldn't be the right guy to work for. And um, I, I've got to tell you, RJ, I've had that conversation on more than one occasion with executives, like senior executives who've worked for me, where I've said to them, look, there are a lot easier jobs than working for me. There are a lot easier jobs that, that pay the same money. Because there are leaders out there who aren't going to demand that you give your best and that you aren't stretched and that you aren't achieving, you know, the things that you can achieve. I'm not going to give you that break. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you a holiday. Like I'm here to bring out your best. That's it. And if that's not what you want, I understand entirely. It doesn't mean I love you any less. It doesn't mean I don't, I think you're an idiot. Doesn't mean I think you're doing the wrong thing. It just means that, you know, this is not the right situation for you. And a lot of times, 
I could see in their eyes that they weren't quite signed up, but couldn't say no either. And and that's unfortunate because sometimes that will end in tears if they if they can't uh, convince themselves that they should rise to the occasion. But even your highest performers, they're only going to give you you know eighty or eighty five percent on any given day, unless as a leader you know how to bring out their best, unless you demand that they give more than they would naturally give if they were just left to their own devices because people always have more in them. And it's not until you bring that out that they get the feeling of satisfaction and self-esteem that comes from the achievement of really difficult things. So the way I look at it, for the people who want that, I will give them an incredible gift that they may not get in any other aspect of their life. Maybe. How many people who've worked for me get that as a percentage? I don't know. Less than 20, probably. For most, they just find it um, a tough part of their career where they grow and they look back on it and say, that was really tough, but I can see how far I've come. But they didn't enjoy it. But for the 20% that actually get it and get that feeling of achievement and it starts to lift who they are, they just, they're completely different people. They walk differently. They talk differently. Their confidence goes up. And that, for me, is the payback for all the other hard stuff that you have to do. Mate, I couldn't agree with you more, Marty. I mean, I, you know, I, just reflecting on myself, will always move towards what's the hardest. And when my career um, started to get easy in the sense that I've been doing what I'm doing for a long time, you know, my CEO once made a comment to me, he goes, you, you keep the thermostat just where you need to, but I feel like we never really get like all of you. And I, and that was part of the reason I came to Victoria because, you know, I, I did an MBA a few years ago at UNSW was tough exec MBA. Then I, you know, I, I, my wife said, don't do anything for six months. I need you at home, new baby. Then I started doing ultra marathons. Then, you know, everyone at my my business started to complain that you're giving most of your energy. And what will happen, the way I'm designed is I will move towards what is the hardest and what's pulling me. And so what I've done coming to Victoria is I've wanted to refocus myself on the business because I'm now physically here. But I think that's really important that I do love my tough conversations with my CEO when he looks at me and says, we need you. We need you a hundred because I get like, I, and you know what I'm saying? Like it, it just pulls the best out of me because I then want to rise to that occasion. So it's like, as a, I guess as a CEO and leader, you're saying you got to continually keep the heat on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, there's, there's, there's some real subtlety to it though, RJ. You've got to know when to back off when you put too much pressure on someone. You've got to know when that time is and also be aware of the other things in their life. So you with a new baby, guess what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you heaps and heaps of space and heaps of rope, you know? And I'll even say to you, RJ, mate, you need to just take a little bit of a step back for the next six months. The most important thing in your life right now is making sure that your wife and new child are supported. That's the most important thing. I need you to do that because if you don't, you're going to be miserable. And so recognising what each individual has in their lives, knowing when you can stretch them, knowing when you need to back off, and then doing the best thing for them under any given circumstance while you're doing the best thing for the organisation. That's the subtlety that I would always try and capture. How many times have I done it exactly the right way? I don't know, not many, probably. 
but it's just that that constant quest for how do I better help this person to liberate their talent and performance without blowing them up or burning them out or destroying another area of their life. It's a really interesting, um, really interesting one. I mean, you look at your management consulting firms, from what I understand, I've never worked in one, but like your, your big four or your BCGs, you know, you always hear that you'll either burn out or you'll make partner, right? Like they, they'll, they'll pull and they'll kind of push you for the best and whether you can hack it long-term or not, they don't really care, right? Because they're trying to get the best out of you. But I suppose when you're running a firm with a long-term view, it's, there's a longevity piece there. And I guess it leads to my, my last question, Marty, how, how does your methodology vary with the nuances of like, for me, I would make the assumption that you would be really, really perfect for ASX or NASDAQ listed firms, big firms. How does your methodology work? Let's say within a business like mine in an SME, you might have relatives, your sister-in-law works here. Like, like how do you then manage that? Right. Because they're two different kind of organisms, aren't they? Oh, totally. Totally. Very, very, very different. Funnily enough, though, I don't think the differentiator, differentiator, sorry, it's getting late for me here. The differentiator is either size or industry. For me, what differentiates this stuff is the will of the leader. So you think about um, the tone that a CEO sets. In my view, the job of the CEO is to set the tone, the pace, and the standard for the organization. And I've seen CEOs in really small businesses set an incredible pace, an incredible standard, and the right tone, morally and ethically. I've seen CEOs in very large businesses be extraordinarily lackadaisical about that. And it's pretty, I mean, there are certain trends where certain industries attract different types of people. Um, you know, so the tech unicorns in Silicon Valley are going to attract a certain type of, you know, A-type high-performer personality. So you're dealing with a different um, sample set there. But by the same token, I think that any leader of an organization who actually wants to adopt a performance-based culture to improve the way their organization runs, these concepts are entirely applicable. We've even had government organizations using these principles. We've had professional sporting teams in the US using these principles to actually change the way they lead. And it's I've seen it transfer now across so many different environments, so many different cultures, so many different industries that I'm genuinely starting to believe this universally applies. Now, different people emphasize or de-emphasize certain parts of it based on their immediate context, and that's appropriate. I used to say when I go into consulting work uh, with different clients, I'd say, I want to talk to your CEO and find out if they're serious. And they'd look at me and I'd say, look, I, I really want to work with you guys, but if you're not serious about making change, I can only do so much. I'm just the out-of-town expert with a briefcase. And if I come in here and you're not serious about the change, you're going to waste your money and my time and people are going to become cynical. So you've got to do something different. You've got to be prepared to do the hard yards. And I'll give them examples, you know. The very first time that one of your most trusted, long-standing employees 
comes to you and says, this is ruining the business. If we do this, the business is going to blow up. And that consultant you've gone here, got in here, do you know, do you know he's murdering babies over behind that wall? Like, you know, all, all sorts of stuff goes on, right? And I'll actually eyeball a CEO and say, the first time that person comes to you, the one that you've trusted and relied on for the last 20 years and tells you that story, what's your answer going to be? Because you need to know that you have the appetite for this if you want me to come in and work with you. And if you have the appetite, I'm really happy to go shoulder to shoulder with you and get this done. But if not, let, let's not start out on something that's going to end up being a cynical exercise in, you know, impression management with your people. Mm, that's a really good answer. I think I think it's very clear that ultimately uh, you're focused on working with CEOs and firms that have decided that they want to go down a performance orientated path, irrespective of size, right? And I do take your point that certain industries might be better aligned, but every firm wants to deliver value. And that value may, like you said earlier, not be money, but it's purpose. And it's about being serious about whatever that value looks like for you, which then dictates one should have a performance-based approach. So um, we'll leave it there. Marty, really want to thank you for your time and want to ask, where can we find you? Where can we learn more about you, man? Sure. Well, um, if you're in the US, martingmore.com is spelled exactly as it sounds, martingmore.com. Everything relating to my um, speaking, consulting and book is on there. Uh, For those around the rest of the world, yourceomentor.com. And that's got a bunch of stuff, heaps of freebies to download. And of course, don't forget the No Bullshit Leadership podcast, short and sharp episode once a week, every uh, Tuesday night in the US. And um, hopefully you get some snippets out of that like the other hundreds of thousands of people who are listening to it and getting heaps out of it. So it's free, it's easy to apply, and you know we just want to make the world better. We want leaders to lead better. That's why we're here. Yeah, no, Marty, you've left us with a lot of good uh, principles. Um, and I think for the audience here at Ultra Habits, which we like to call the corporate athlete, it's very, very relevant. So we thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, RJ. Much appreciated. It's been a real pleasure, mate. Thank you.